Welcome to episode 8 of Teacher Talk with Zach Clancy. I'm Zach Clancy. Each week, we'll be exploring a topic in education that will be helpful for K-12 educators and interesting to everyone else. This week, we're going to be looking at IEPs, or the Individualized Education Program. It's something that all special ed students have, and it's helpful to think of it as something that is both a tangible product and the result of an ongoing process. And, as we'll see once we delve into the details, IEPs are something that all K-12 educators need to know about because special ed students have to be taught in what's called the least restrictive environment. And that's part of a process also known as mainstreaming. As always, I hope you find this podcast interesting and helpful. Either way, please follow me on Facebook at Teacher Talk with Zach Clancy and on Twitter at Teacher Talk WZC. That's the words teacher and talk, followed by the letters W, Z, and C. You can also get a hold of me at teachertalkwzc at gmail.com. But before we delve into the details, I have a correction from last week, from episode 7. When I said that much like Sune Sabato, Makaguchi, and Kurt Hahn, Nelson Goodman's views towards teaching were strongly influenced by events that occurred during his early childhood, I should have said Goodman's views towards teaching were also strongly influenced by events that occurred during his early adulthood, not childhood. Anyway, with that said, it's time for Collaboration Corner. This week's shout-out is Shameless Self-Promotion. The Teacher Talk website is up and running. You can check it out at teachertalkwithzachclancy.com. That's one word, no spaces, no underscores. Just teachertalkwithzachclancy.com. There, you'll be able to check out past episodes, read a little bit about what made me decide to start this podcast, see a little bit about what my personal research interests are, and you can also leave me feedback about past episodes as well as ideas for future episodes. Again, that's teachertalkwithzachclancy.com. All right. So, the Individualized Education Program, also called IEP, is a program for special education students. And it was a part of the Individuals with Disabilities Act, also called IDEA, which was reauthorized by Congress in 2004. IEPs place special education students in the quote-unquote least restrictive school setting so that they may receive a free public education that will provide them with services and assist them in the transition to the post-school world, as well as establish benchmarks to assess their progress. So first, I'm going to go a little bit into the background of the program before we talk about how it exists today. The IEP was first required under the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, also called the EHA. Before the EHA, children with disabilities had few opportunities to obtain a public education. In 1967, nearly 200,000 people with quote-unquote, significant disabilities, lived in state institutions for mental illness. 
And by 1970, only one in five students with disabilities was receiving an education in the U.S. school system. In addition, at this time, several states had laws that excluded these students from public education. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Education, which I'll link to in the show notes, along with all the other sources that I cite in this episode. So anyway, the EHA, the act that mandated IEPs, had four main purposes. And they're important to know because they form the core of the current IDEA Act in addition to some other requirements that I will go into uh, a little bit later. So with that said, um, the first purpose of the EHA is to guarantee that students with disabilities have access to a free, appropriate public education, which emphasizes special education and related services designed to meet their unique needs, and to guarantee the protection of the rights of children with disabilities and their parents, as well as to help local and state governments provide for the education of all children with disabilities, in addition to assessing and assuring the effectiveness of efforts to educate all children with disabilities. And that's according to the language of the actual law, which I'll also link to in the show notes. So, like I said, the Individuals with Disabilities Act of 2004 continues the EHA's mission while also doing some of the other things as well, such as seeking to help states in the implementation of a statewide system of early intervention services for infants and toddlers with disabilities and their families, and to guarantee that educators and parents have the necessary tools to improve educational results for children with disabilities through research, preparation support systems, as well as technology and media. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Education. So it's worth noting that while IDEA authorizes federal aid in the form of a discretionary grant, states must choose to participate. So in other words, states do not have to comply with the IDEA program requirements if they wish to opt out of the program. Uh, It just means that they won't get grant money from the federal government. Um, However, all states currently participate in the program. So, like I said earlier, the IEP can be thought of as a tangible product when it's finished. You know, when it's finished, it's a printed document that you could drop on your foot. And the IEP functions to ensure that the main purposes of IDEA are being enacted properly. Um, So, the student is the main character of the story when the IEP is viewed as a product. The IEP as a product addresses the many dimensions of the individual child and it is a written plan uniquely tailored to the individual student. As a result, the IEP as a product can be viewed as child-centered. However, as we'll see in just a minute, recent changes have eroded the child-centered nature of IEPs. So, but before we get into that, according to IDEA, an IEP must address several issues. The IEP is required to contain a description of the student's current performance, It is based on tests given to the student and evaluations of the student. It must also include a statement that explains how the student's disability negatively interferes with his or her ability to be involved in general education and make progress within the general ed classroom. 
IEPs must also contain annual goals, which are measurable goals that the student can reasonably accomplish within a year. And again, that's according to the U.S. Department of Education. So after IDEA was reauthorized in 2004, it dictated that except in instances of alternative assessment, students must be academically evaluated with the No Child Left Behind system. And this reform reduces the variety of assessment options that may be utilized by IEPs. So instead of methods of assessment that were developed based on the skills and needs of the individual student, uh, students are now generally assessed by standardized tests, which are designed for large groups of students with a wide range of abilities. IEPs must also contain a list of special education services for which the student is eligible. If a student is unable to fully participate with non-disabled students and or participate in statewide and district-wide assessments, then the IEP must explain why participation is being restricted. IEPs must include the times and locations at which students and their families can receive special education services. Services related to current transition courses and services that will be needed in the future are also addressed. And what it means by transition services is it means transitioning from high school into society at large, whatever that might look like. You know, for some higher functioning students, they might attend higher education and might receive some accommodations, like having extra time on a test. It could involve a student holding down a full or part-time job and or being in some sort of assisted living situation. Um, you know, and for some students, it means staying in the K-12 public school system until they reach the age of 21. So although the IEP is a child-centered product in its current form, the No Child Left Behind requirement could have some implications for the qualities of individualized education programs. Recent research has criticized the use of traditional assessment for student evaluations and the development of IEPs. Um, critics argue that special education teachers and school psychologists viewed IEPs developed using Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence as being more sensitive to the academic needs of the individual student and as providing more ways for students to positively change their academic experiences. Therefore, IEPs developed with multiple intelligence-based evaluations are more beneficial to academic success. So, if standardized evaluation methods are inferior to multiple intelligence-based methods, it seems that IEPs that are assessed by standardized methods could be inferior as well, and therefore create disadvantages for some students. Um, unfortunately, that's how the law requires IEPs to be evaluated now. So, like I mentioned earlier, IEPs can also be thought of as the result of an ongoing process. The IEP is the result of a dynamic process that goes through several steps. A distinguishing factor for IEPs is that potential students for the program must be identified through activities conducted on the state level. So even though it gets funding from the federal government, it's determined on the state level. 
and both parents and educators may identify students who are candidates for evaluation. Um, but either way, parental consent is required before actual evaluation occurs. And students are evaluated in all areas related to their suspected disability. And once again, that's according to the Department of Education. And interestingly, if parents do not agree with the evaluation results, they have the right to seek an independent educational evaluation and may request that the school district pays for it. So once evaluations have been completed, uh, the child's parents and several qualified professionals examine the results to determine if the child is eligible for services under the IEP program. And after a child has been determined to be eligible for services, the school arranges for an IEP meeting to be held. School staff are required to notify parents of the need for an IEP meeting in a timely manner. And the time and location of the meeting must be agreed upon by the parents and the school staff. IEP meetings require the presence of several people, often referred to collectively as the IEP team. In general, uh, people who are required to attend include the child's parents, one regular education teacher, at least one special education teacher. Oftentimes, there, or sometimes, there will be a special education paraprofessional in there as well. If necessary, there will be an interpreter. There will also be an individual representing the school system and individuals with knowledge about the child and or special expertise who can be invited by parents and or school staff. So that could be like a person who works with the student a lot outside of school and knows them really well in a, a context that their teachers perhaps don't and could provide insight about the student that way. It could also be, for example, um, an expert related to the particular type of disability that the student is suspected of having who does not work for the school system and does not necessarily work with that student, but the, they might be a colleague of the special ed teacher and, you know, the special ed teacher could request that the person with the, the specialized expertise be there in order to, you know, ensure that the student's getting a really good quality IEP produced for them. Also, when it's appropriate, the student may be present at the IEP meeting. In instances where the student is allowed to participate in the IEP meeting, he or she ceases to be the star of the show and takes a role as an ensemble cast member. And the IEP meeting is itself a process, you know, a process within a process, which, in my personal experience, can vary drastically based on numerous factors, such as the extent of the child's disability, the level of parental involvement, family background, as well as the type of special education program that the school has. Anyway, it's during this meeting that the IEP is written. After the IEP is written, the school begins to provide services while measuring the student's progress and reporting that information to parents. And at least once a year, the IEP team must meet and review the written IEP. Parents can ask for modifications to be made to the written IEP. And if the school does not agree with the parent's request, then parents have many options to reach an agreement. One of those is that they may ask for the student to be reevaluated and or reassessed, in addition to filing formal complaints with state-level education agencies. And lastly, regardless of parental requests, students must be reevaluated every three years. So there we have it, IEPs in a nutshell. 
Hopefully that shines some light on a sometimes misunderstood topic. I hope you find it interesting and helpful. Anyway, that's about all the time we have for now. I look forward to hearing your feedback about this episode. Also, it recently came to my attention that I don't invite people who are the parents of students to participate in the conversation. And I feel like I probably should. So, parents of students who are listeners of Teacher Talk, what do you think about IEPs? Do you have any personal experience with them? Do you feel like they're helpful? Send your answers my way, regardless of whether you're a teacher, a parent, or everyone else, along with any other questions or comments you might have and suggestions for future episodes to teachertalkwithzackclancy.com. You can also reach me at teachertalkwzc at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at teachertalkwzc and Facebook at teachertalkwithzackclancy. That's all for this week's show. I'm Zach Clancy. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.